Welcome to Zoom. Enter your meeting ID followed by pound. You are in the meeting now. You are the first participant. Please stand by. I left Syracuse on March 13th, 2020. One year later, I still haven't come back. I left behind so much. Old haunts, new friends, the Daily Orange newsroom, and more than a few textbooks. But today we reflect on more than one story about 2020. From my closet in Washington, 3,000 miles away, I'm joined by my colleagues in New York, Daily Orange reporters Sarah Alessandrini, Maggie Hicks, and Chris Hippensteel. Over Zoom, we've gotten together to talk about what we lost and what we learned as reporters, as students, and as friends. From 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Marnie Munoz. You're listening to the Daily Orange Podcast. It's Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. Okay, well, hi Maggie, Chris, and Sarah. It's good to see your faces. Hello, good to see you too. Hi. Hi. I want to start with a memory from our last few days before the shutdowns together, specifically March 12th, 2020. And that was our last day working inside the Daily Orange newsroom together before leaving for spring break. We worked on that night's news stories, put together a paper, took a group photo, and left. And so, Maggie, I know that was the same night that you helped write a front page story about in-person classes being suspended. And I want to hear from you first. What was going through your head that night? And when you walked out those doors, what happened next for you? Wow. (laughs) I mean, I think... Like, I just, I specifically remember Chris and I went to the Barnes Center and it was kind of deserted, but there were still people just kind of sitting there and they just didn't really know what to do. Everybody was just kind of sitting around and they wanted to be there, but they just didn't really know why or where to go or what to do. So we kind of went around and talked to a few people in the lobby and it was just like a general consensus of, I have no idea what's happening. I'm very confused. I don't know what's going to happen next. And so then we went back to the house. And as we were writing the story, I just remember feeling like very numb the whole time. Like we were writing the story. We were trying to get it out and we had to do it quickly because we were on deadline. And like, I don't know, it was so strange. Everything was happening all at once. I remember Danny, the sports editor at the time, coming in and being like, oh, the NBA just got canceled. And everybody was like, oh, all these things are getting canceled. And I was I was in the zone of writing And it felt like it just wasn't happening. It wasn't processing in my head. Nothing was processing in my head. And I remember feeling like, should I be crying right now? Should I be really sad? Should I be freaked out? And I really just did not have any emotions whatsoever because I just could not process what was happening. I remember then we had a staff meeting and Haley and Catherine, who were the EIC and managing editors at the time, Everybody was really sad and like talking about how it might be the last time in house. I just was like, I have no idea what is going on right now. I don't know how to feel. I don't know how to feel leaving this house. I don't know what to do. And the last memory I have was Chris and I walked towards the Mount Steps because that's where I was living at the time. And I was like, well, I I guess I'll see you later. I don't know. And I just had that same feeling for the rest of the week of 
I'm so numb right now. I don't even know where to begin to decide what to feel. Should I be crying? I don't think I cried until the last few hours that I was in Syracuse because I just didn't know how to feel. Going back to what Maggie said, I mean, she was right. It was very much this sense of we were all in the in the deal offices on 230 Euclid, a place we'd spent, you know, the last few months together, a place we'd all very much grown to call a second home. And we were just in this place we'd all been, and it felt like the world was just crashing around outside. Everything was falling apart, and we were alone in this room, sitting in silence, looking at one another, just wondering what was going to happen next. And I think the attitude varied between like optimism, like, hey, we're going to be back in two weeks, everything's going to be okay. And the people who are already worried about what is this going to mean for next semester? Are we ever going to be able to come back here? You know, just how bad is this going to get? And after that, it was just sort of everyone walked around in a daze. I think for a few days, campus filtered out. Everything was very somber, very quiet. I remember, you know, being one of the later people on campus and just walking around what was basically a deserted Syracuse. It felt like a ghost town. And then you just sort of went home. And sooner rather than later, we realized that we weren't going to be coming back, that this was going to be indefinite. And that was it. And it was just sort of a very quiet tragedy, I felt like. It was very silent. Compared to other disasters, this was just something that happened very slowly, very quietly, almost in the background. You know, it felt very far away. And at the same time, it shut down everything around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've been living the new normal life for a long time now. But I'm curious, at what point did each of you realize that this would be a lot more permanent? Oh, I don't, I don't know when I realized it was going to be permanent. I mean, you brought up that group photo that almost like brought me to tears because I just remember I think that was the first time that I ever did something out of precaution that like we may not be coming back, even though that night it still felt so unreal. Like what Maggie said, things getting canceled left and right. I was like, this isn't happening. And just to think that just a few days before that, we were just getting ready to go on spring break. And I think we were all excited for spring break. We needed a break. We were burnt out. We were we were tired. We were like, oh, I can't wait to have a week off, just like, no production. And then that day, that changed for me. I was like, I don't want to go home now because I don't know if I'll be coming back. But to answer your question, the realization that things were going to be like this for a long time, I don't know. I think it slowly started to settle in once I was home because I was prepared for getting that email that was, you know, the rest of the semester is going to be online because first they only moved online until the 30th. And, you know, we thought we were coming back, but I knew so many other kids at other colleges that, you know, they already canceled the semester and I, it just seemed inevitable at that point. So I was pretty prepared to get that email that, you know, the rest of the semester was going to be online, but I don't think I, I don't think I knew for a while how long exactly this was going to drag out. I was going to say, I think for me, it took me a really long time to accept it. <laughs> I remember I would go to the grocery store with my mom and see people. And before masks were very normalized, I would see people in masks and just almost break down. It would like freak me out almost because I was just like, how is this going to be something that's so normal? How is this going to be something that we're getting so used to? And Sarah's right. I think it was just a really slow realization that, oh my God, this is this is what the world is going to look like for so long. I remember like, I was walking with my dad at one point on our daily walk because that's a normal thing now. And the weirdest part is we don't know when this is going to end. And I think that's what scared me the most. There was no end date. There was no deadline. We had no idea 
when any of this would like, like, would it be a few months? Would it be a year? I think it took me a really long time just to accept, okay, this is how the world is going to be now. And I need to be used to it. So. Yeah. I mean, I remember Maggie and I, we talked about that before. I remember March 12th, like the day that I came home, the 13th or the 12th, I took my sister through the Duncan drive-thru and the drive-thru woman had a mask on and I didn't. And it, there was no mask mandate yet. And she was like, oh, you're not afraid of the virus or something like that. And I was like, this is so strange. I never thought about this, that we're all supposed to be wearing masks now. And that was right before the quarantine order. And that was like the last time I left my house, which is just so weird to think about. Yeah. And and obviously, like in New York, Governor Cuomo only issued a general lockdown for the state by March 20th. So even when we left, things were still, they were slowing down, but they were still very much going. The The whole world hadn't stopped yet, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, there was that weird lull period that even though we think of like March 13th is when everything kind of, or March 17th when it became like a national emergency, that week was still a strange like some people were traveling some people were still like, getting to where they needed to be and yeah things were pretty much still open I don't think masks were quite a thing yet so everyone was still trying to just figure out what this meant for themselves and I don't know that was like a really weird in-between period where people were still just confused and didn't quite know what to do yet there was no like set guidance yeah, I remember I was in Colorado because that's where I was going for spring break. And my dad was like, oh, this is great. We'll get extra days. And I was like, OK, sure, because it just really didn't in our brains. It just didn't settle in that this was a problem and we probably shouldn't be traveling across the country. And I remember we got back and obviously things were a little bit more intense where I lit not in the middle of the woods in Colorado. And I remember starting to see the masks and starting to see people distance and starting to see people go on the other side of the street while you were walking because you didn't want to be near them on the sidewalk. And it was just that sinking feeling of, wow, this is what the world is going to look like now. And it took a really long time to realize that, I think. And I think for me, it was weird. I'm from a small town. Nothing changed outside my window. I was, you know, I wasn't living in a city where suddenly stores were empty and highways were deserted. I was with, I was still on the same like quiet back roads. I'd always been. Nothing seemed to have changed. So it was just days passing in a blur where I was waking up and just watching these graphs on TV that represented thousands of lives and seeing nightmarish images that came out of New York City, that came out of the larger metropolitan areas that were hit hardest and feeling like all of this was so far away. And it wasn't until the virus really reached my area and businesses where I were like started closing down that it really felt like something tangible. the way that the DO handled its coverage and the stories that we chose to tell as the pandemic progressed? I mean, would any of you say that the DO was prepared to cover the pandemic? Prepared? No. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because I was just reading one write-up I did. It was like March 9th. It was the first 
time a Syracuse patient was being tested for coronavirus, just being tested, we put that news release out. And I think I say that because I don't think we knew how serious the virus was ever going to be. And so it's funny to look back at certain things that seemed so important back then and just to see how it grew. You know, like we covered first patient in Cornell type thing and it just got worse and worse and worse. And it's just I don't think we ever imagined that we would be covering, you know, first patient in Onondaga County, all these deaths in Onondaga County. I don't think that we knew we would be doing press conferences from Ryan McMahon every week, stuff like that. And that seemed so momentous back then, just a patient being tested and just to see how that grew. And now look at us, we're being tested every week. We always joke about this, but that nut graph that we used to have to write. Oh my god! The novel coronavirus causes COVID-19 a respiratory illness and then recording all of the numbers. I don't know. I don't think anybody can be prepared for that. And I think both in terms of what we wanted to cover, but also in terms of just handling, covering all of this stuff and also figuring out what in the world is happening. I don't think any of us were prepared for that mental challenge of, oh, we are in the middle of a pandemic now. We're scared for what's going to happen next. We're scared for like so many things, but we also need to put on that reporter hat and be able to tell these stories because that's our job. So I think for me, that was like one of the first times that I struggled with figuring out my mental health and also being a journalist. And I feel like that same can be said for a lot of people. I don't know about you guys, but... I think handling our coverage was very much like a day-to-day thing, trying to figure out how exactly to go about covering everything happening. Governor Cuomo was giving a press briefing every single day, and some days those briefings were just, here are the numbers, and then sometimes he would say something actually really important. So at first we were covering every single press briefing, then we were only doing like a few weeks, and then we were we had a running post where we were just putting updates that if it was important, we would put it up. And then we had the coronavirus tag where we used to have all our coronavirus stories in one spot. Now it feels like all our stories link back to coronavirus somehow because we don't even need to really mention COVID or the pandemic. People just kind of know. We don't even really need much of that context anymore. So that has changed a lot. Do any of you think that adapting to COVID's new circumstances was easier for us as Gen Zers? No, I don't think so. I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, one of my least favorite like types of articles to read were all the big business publications basically saying like, oh, this is the end of the office. This is the end of anything in person. From now on, we're all going to live and work and go to school in our homes. And this is the new future. And I just remember sitting there like, no, this is awful. I hate going to school online. I hate not seeing anybody ever. I think if anything, this pandemic has shown us not the possibilities of technology, but some of its limitations. The fact that there are some things we can't do remote. There are some things we can't do over the internet. And at least we can't do them as well. I think some things will stay remote. I hope the number of those things is small, but I think more likely than not, a lot of things are going to go back to being in person if possible, you know, when this pandemic is over. And especially for the DO, for publishing, doing remote production with each of us in our own rooms, in our own homes, just does not work. We need to be like... It's a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, we know we need to be like in the same room talking with each other, especially for print nights. So it doesn't go smoothly at all. And I know it wouldn't for most workplaces. One crazy thing about that is that all this has happened as we're entering the journalism industry. And so in a way, this pandemic news cycle and workflow is literally our baseline. It's all we have ever known as novice journalists. It's 
our sense of norm was reporters. Yeah, and I was just thinking too, I can't remember the last time I actually did an in-person interview, not over Zoom. The ability to do an interview in person and read someone's body language and really feel more connected with them and have more of a conversation, create that level of trust and comfort, that's very hard to do over Zoom. On some hands, Zoom is nice and the phone calls are nice because you can connect with people from all parts of the country, all parts of the world. But on the other hand, doing an in-person interview, especially for a big story where, or if it's a profile especially, it's extremely difficult to really gauge that same level of connection with a source. But at the same time, for me at least, the DO was the first big journalism experience that I had. And I basically have just been doing phone interviews since I started working there. And now it's like, that's just automatic to me. Like I think even after the pandemic winds down and we can actually do things in person again, I think my automatic response is going to be like, oh, like here's my phone number. Like I'll call you at this time. It's really weird to see how we're novice journalists and this is what we know. This is what we know about how to interview people, how to talk to people, how to write stories. It's going to be really interesting to see how we react like when the world goes back to normal somehow. Chris, You stepped into the role of news editor once the fall 2020 semester began. What was it like for you to do that job with the pandemic still going full swing? It was difficult. The beginning was the hardest part. You'd expect that once we're back on campus, that that would be the most intense part of the news cycle. But when we were back on campus, there was some semblance of normalcy. The hardest part of the job was, you know, I took over during the summer, which I think in a lot of traditional DO years might have been a bit of downtime, might have been a time where reporters could go out and really pursue some long-term story they're passionate about with the hopes of having it ready for the fall. In the summer, we were going full tilt. We never really had a break, especially with breaking news. SU might drop a news release every single day, hinting at what the fall semester would look like. And we were all working remote, not just spread across a campus, spread across a country in different time zones. Marnie, you have some experience with that. And many of us had jobs, you know, many of us had internships, many of us had things we were doing on the side that was restrictive as far as when we could write up stories. I worked at a golf course over the summer. There were countless times where SU would just drop some news release and I would go like hide behind the fifth green and type it up on my phone and send it off to someone like, please, for the love of God, edit this and post it. Because it was like probably some super important information at the time when so many SU students were like looking for this information, they were going to the DO for it. They were, you know, clamoring to know, like for some semblance of certainty about the fall semester. In the absence of clear and constant communication from SU, many of these press releases were buried or hidden or not put in places students could access them. The DO was sort of like the one central place where that information was aggregated. And a lot of students went to us. I think From an analytics standpoint, the majority of our readership was over the summer when people were just looking for that information to come anywhere. And you had seven people, probably the majority of us working second jobs at the time, responsible for accumulating all that information. And it was definitely a trying experience. I mean, it was trial by fire, but we all pulled through and we definitely learned a lot from it. As of August, we still didn't even really fully know if we were going back. SU announced it, but... Any day, Cuomo could have said universities can't go back. They were planning on bringing us back, but any day the state could have pulled it. So like Chris said, everyone was really looking for answers and they were looking to us.
when you return back to school, when that happens. I mean, you know, the university is going to be following this so that if they have to extend past March 30th, they're going to do it. They're not going to put you in danger. Online, people have been calling 2020 a historic year, a year that we can't forget. What's a story that you've written in the past year that stands out to you now? There's one I keep going back to in my head, and it might have been like one of the first stories we wrote about coronavirus, definitely the first fully fleshed out, multiple sources, not just a breaking news update kind of story. And it was about Chinese international students at Syracuse who were studying at SU And at the same time, we're hearing stories from their families abroad uh, in China about what the lockdown was like. And I remember hearing all these stories about quarantines and cities being locked down and seeing videos they showed me of their cities just having their highways deserted and all these subway stations empty, thinking like, what kind of dystopian nightmare reality is this? And like, thank God that's not happening here. And I think it was well-researched. I got the opportunity to interview so many students and, you know, learn about so many different experiences. But it just aged so horribly. I wrote about the coronavirus like it was this thing that was far away, that was never going to touch us, and it was an international issue. It wasn't an issue here. Meanwhile, three months later, I was driving down one of those same deserted highways, except it wasn't in, you know, Hubei province in China. It was in Pennsylvania, you know, and it was just amazing how quick that reality came here. And It just, that story to me was the beginning of all this. It was my first time really engaging with COVID-19 like as a concept. And it just sort of spiraled from there. For me, the story that I just immediately think of is a story that I wrote last fall semester when we were being sent home again. And it was just as soon as it happened, the day that they made the announcement, I ran out and was just interviewing students on the street. And they all kind of had the same reaction, like, here we go again. This is it. Another semester of leaving quickly in a rush. Everyone's fleeing campus. No one wants to get the coronavirus and quick goodbyes. And But no one seemed really surprised. The reaction was, you know, we're disappointed, but not surprised. We saw this coming. We knew this was kind of going to happen. Yeah, we're sad, but we've done it before. And for people like our age who are sophomores, it feels like we've never had a normal semester at Syracuse. We've never had a normal semester at college. Another source had said that that I interviewed and I was like, wow, I, I feel that. And that's just so impactful to me. For me, it was the story that I did last semester about parents in the Syracuse City School District. So taking more of a look at the city, because one thing that I didn't think about was when we went home, in my head, everything in Syracuse stopped. Everything on campus stopped. There was no one there. But the reality is there is still a very big city around the campus and things kept happening in the city. I remember, Marnie, you had a story about funeral homes and we did a little bit of coverage on it. Like that was a a wonderful story, but I forgot, which is awful, but I forgot that there was a city around this campus that was still going on and still happening and still moving and still having to deal with a lot of stuff. So when I did that story and like I heard parents talking about what they did over the summer, trying to figure out how to get laptops for their children, because a lot of them just had no access to technology when they were trying to figure out how to get online and how to let their kids take classes online. I just remember like interviewing all of them and being like, oh my God, there is a complete other city outside of this campus that I just don't think about nearly enough. 
And so having done that story and then some other stories in the city, it's helped me realize that there are a lot of people outside of this campus who are dealing with a lot of real issues. And so I'm really glad that I got to do that story because it was near and dear to my heart, but it also showed me a lot of the problems that people are having outside of college and outside of SU with the pandemic and being able to highlight those and give a voice to those people was really great. When we talk about loss and death, it's something that's hard for us to grapple with in the first place, even as a generation that's lived, I think, the majority of our lives with the United States at war. It's still something that before the pandemic, it's never something that was supposed to affect us. It was never something that was supposed to intrude with our daily lives, stop school, impact our schedules, you know. And I remember for a while after we stopped putting the global case numbers up on those nut graphs that we were talking about earlier, partly because the numbers had simply gotten too big to fathom or look at in a sentence. I remember having that conversation in the news staff and COVID-19 and loss also touched our campus community too. What was it like for you all to write about the people of SU who've died in the past months? Just the way that we grieved, COVID made that difficult because normally, I mean, when a campus experiences that much loss in just a month, you know, there were two students who died within 72 hours, which is horrible. And then there were other students who died in like a span of a few weeks which, and a professor. And usually when there's that much death, there would be a huge gathering on campus. There would be a candlelight vigil. We'd all be together. We would all be in the same place mourning together. And we could not do that. We as a campus community could not have a collective mourning. We couldn't have that togetherness, that closeness. And that's usually when when so many people experience such a profound loss, that's usually how we cope together as a community. And we could not do that. I covered a virtual vigil and, you know, that was something that was beautiful. It is sad to think that we couldn't do something more in person. We couldn't have all gathered on the quad together. We couldn't have had a real in-person, but we couldn't have felt the connection the close with. We had to try to, like everything else during the pandemic, we had to try to mimic that closeness, that togetherness over Zoom. And it was so hard to, I feel like, go through that and to watch the campus struggle with that, that, you know, at a time when we all really needed connection, we needed to be together, we couldn't do that. The pandemic kept us from doing that. And that was, that was really hard for everyone to experience. Let's talk about the pandemic wall, you know, that invisible mental block that people talk about running into over and over again as the pandemic stretches on. Do you think that your relationship to journalism in general has changed since last year? I mean, are you tired of writing? <laughs> Why are you doing this? I mean, <laughs> I'll say it. I am tired. Yes, I feel like I've had a full <laughs> journalism, a full long journalism career in not even two years. I wasn't I haven't even been on the DO staff for Tech, yeah, technically not even a year. Technically, I I joined the DO as an in-house staffer January. So, oh, I guess that kind of has been a year. I, oh, I don't know. It does. It like hasn't even been. We've been there for a year. I, I, I can't do math. Yeah, I'm not a math major. But I, I feel like I've had like a full journalism career, and I'm like, oh my gosh, reporting. I don't, I don't know. It's a lot, but also it's it is rewarding too. It's. I think we, me, Chris and Maggie, the past year, I think we've experienced more than a lot of student journalists have the opportunity to. And it's weird to look at it like that. But yeah, we've had an opportunity to really have a real 
to have some real world reporting experience. And I think that's been good for us. And yes, it is absolutely shaped my view of journalism and made me rethink a lot of things and ask myself as a person a lot of questions. So that's a very complicated question. Do I, how do I feel? I do feel tired, yes, but <laughs> also it is rewarding and it's been a learning experience. For me, it's, I, the thought process is just generally, well, I'm burned out, but then again, it's 2021. We've been living through a major human catastrophe for a year. I think everybody's burned out. So I am tired, but I'm not alone. So there's some comfort in that, as strange as that may be. It's been interesting to be able to be a part of history in a way and have my name on history to be recorded because that's what journalists do. That's our job. We're supposed to be recording and helping people make sense of things that are happening. And that's takes a toll on all of us mentally because this is a terrible thing happening and no one wants to be at the forefront of that. No one wants to be going and watching it, but that's what we do. And we capture it and we bring it home to the students who we make sure their voices are heard and we put it in their perspective so that maybe we can make sense of it and we can remember it. Going back to Marnie's initial question, it has become such a love-hate relationship, like such a love-hate relationship that I have with this profession because there will be nights where I will be like, I am dead. I don't want to do anything. I want to go to sleep. I hate everybody. I just, I hate this. <laughs> and the amount of times that sources have not gotten back to me and I have lost like four years of my life because I'm just like, mm-hmm. But at the same time, all of that happens. And then I'll publish a story that is actually like incredibly important. And like Chris said, will be in those archives. And for the next day, I'm just like, wow, like, I love this. I love the fact that I get to write. I love the fact that I get to talk to people or like I'll do an interview with someone and it'll just be like the most eye opening, incredible thing. And I'll be like, wow, I love this. I'm so happy. Like, I'm so happy I get the opportunity to talk to these people. I'm so glad I get the opportunity to learn from these people. yourselves i mean what do you guys do to unwind uh, uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if we could say that on a podcast okay okay <laughs> <laughs> we so we found a water tower on syracuse's oh God, campus tower. like i found it actually ironically i was quarantining here before last semester and I had two weeks to do absolutely nothing and I hate doing absolutely nothing. So I was going insane. And so I was like, let me just wander around in the woods and see what happens. And so (laughs) I went in the woods behind where I was quarantining and I like found this staircase and I was like, oh my God, what is this? I like really felt like I was in Narnia because there was just this stone staircase in the middle of the woods and it led to nowhere. And I was like, I'm following it. I'm following it. This is great. It'll be an adventure. So I went up it and I found a path that leads to the water tower by South Campus. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I can't believe I just discovered this water tower. And so I went up there every day. And then as soon as Sarah and Chris came back, I was like, guys, we got to go right now. And I think 
all of last semester, like almost every weekend, we would just go up there and like sit there and, and like romantically stare over the city and just be like, wow, guys, we're we're really living this. Yeah, I don't we'd, know. Um, listen to, yeah, listen to Bruce Springsteen cry, scream a little bit, you know? Yeah. That's just, yeah. That I think was, there's that's a how video we unwind. Of, there's a video of Chris editing something and I'm just like, dude, put your phone away and look at the south campus skyline like please stop <laughs> plenty like of, <laughs> plenty of pictures of us just like standing on various industrial equipment like looking out yes. over the city <laughs> yeah and i think i think that sort of like captures what last year felt like it was just sort of us alone away from the world and at the same point like looking over everything that was happening you know i think if there's one thing that's going to stick out to me from last semester it's going to be those nights just sitting on an excavator overlooking the lights of South Campus and just wondering what tomorrow's gonna bring in a time when nothing was certain and nothing was granted. Yeah, that was that was definitely like a light in the darkness for us. When I think of like my best memories from last year, it was just us hanging out and that was good. The water tower was like our place to go and it was a perfect place to go and get a break from everything. And I think it really gave us like when I look back on 2020, like everything's a complete blur. Like it's a blur yeah. of not again SU. Oh my God, there's a virus. Oh my God, we have to go home. A summer of just insane crap. And then second semester, like we're doing elections, we're covering all of this crazy random coronavirus stuff. Like we're doing all this crazy stuff. And it's it's like that feeling where you're like, oh my God, that year flew by or like felt very long in the moment. And I feel like when we were on the water tower, it gave us a second to like sit down and be like, wow, guys, we're really just in the middle of all of this. Like, it really gave me a moment to start thinking about what we were doing and, like, reflecting on everything that was going on. Like, I have had so many conversations up there with Chris and Sarah just about, wow, this is so weird. Like, we are, we are like, student journalists in the middle of this insane point in the world and just, like, realizing where we are and what we're doing. And, like, it just gave us a second to pause. You know... I still have that photo from our last day together in March 2020. It's of us at the end of a long production night. Everybody looks a bit sheepish at the idea in the back of our heads that maybe all those goodbyes we said might be a bit melodramatic. Maybe the coronavirus might not last so long and we're standing together side by side and arms around each other, everybody's smiling. And as we talk now, I'm hoping that maybe one day we'll be able to recreate it. But thank you, Maggie, Chris, Sarah, for your time. And I hope that you stay safe out there. You too, Thank Marnie. you, Marnie. Thank you. Sarah Alessandrini and Maggie Hicks are assistant news editors, and Chris Hippensteel is a digital editor at The Daily Orange. For the latest stories on COVID-19 on campus and in Syracuse, go to dailyorange.com. A special thank you to Sarah Alessandrini, Maggie Hicks, and Chris Hippensteel. Thanks executive producer Adam Garrity and podcast editor Mariah Humiston. And to our producers, Abby Fritz, Kylie Herlichy, and Catherine Ito. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs>